Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Today, we're joined by an insightful writer and thinker, Charles Hugh Smith, who writes, the status quo is broken, unsustainable. I've been following Charles Hugh's blogs and writings for several years, and he writes about everything from the problems in our moral decay, our erosion of social and financial skills, systemic issues, regulation, environmental problems, and everyday solutions of the labor class and middle class, as well as rooted inequalities and worldwide issues. Charles pierces beneath the surface of problems. He looks at them from a practical and mental framework. And today I was grateful for his time as we dive into his biography, the role of his upbringing in Hawaii, especially the island of Lanai, his creative interests, and his pursuits for sharing and exploring for those trying to adapt and understand and reshape the world. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this conversation. First, uh, thanks so much for participating in this. And like I said in my email, I mean, your content is very broad. So I, and since we're both in Hawaii, I thought maybe we could start there. I have a friend who works for the Four Seasons on Lanai. So I've been to Lanai a few times to go hunting and just, you know, snorkeling. And I saw your bio that you lived on Lanai during the late 60s. And I wanted to maybe just start there and how maybe Lanai has you know, shaped you or not, and just some of your experiences there. Yeah, that's a terrific starting spot. And the, I guess, hesitation I have, if I can call it that, is that it's very easy to be nostalgic about that era in Hawaii, which um, is uh, the era of the late 60s through the 70s. Uh, because it it had it shared characteristics with the really old days, the pre-statehood you know, 50s and the the boom years of the early 60s. But it also uh, was the transitional period of the Hawaiian Renaissance and the counterculture, which of course were were dual forces. Uh, in other words, the counterculture was in Hawaii, but it it found unique expression in Hawaii because it was um, part of the fuel of the Hawaiian Renaissance of, of hula music, political activity, and a reclaiming of history that had been dismissed of or forgotten, at, depending on <laughs> your perspective. But in any event, so therefore, when I speak to my old uh, friends, uh, my teammates uh, on the basketball team, uh, on Lanai, many of them express a, a form of nostalgia for those years because life seemed safe and secure in ways that life is no longer safe and secure. And I can uh, discuss that sort of socioeconomically, that one of the Frasers I have from my uh, life on Lanai, as brief as it was a year, was an experience of the old plantation economy. And that Lanai was a vibrant, uh, profitable plantation for pineapple. And virtually the entire town you know, worked for Dole or lived off of the population that worked for Dole. 
there was only a smattering of people who worked for the the bank, the little bank there, the the little post office. And there was very little government, like state or county offices were basically non-existent. So it was a plantation town and it was a union plantation town, meaning that the, the decades of ruthless exploitation had led to all the turmoil and challenges and crises of, of the union movement in Hawaii, which ultimately led to reasonable wages, low cost housing. And so people on Lanai, their work was hard. I mean, brutally hard. I, I worked uh, that one summer uh, in the fields along with some of my younger classmates. And it was it's pretty hard to find work that is more physically demanding than being out in a blistering tropical sun. And you're 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 basically picking hundreds of pounds of of fruit that grows in a very prickly plant, and you're working, you're walking, you know, for hours and hours. And so yeah, it, it's physically challenging. And so if you do that work, you also come to appreciate all other work you ever do is light, unless you're really going to do something strenuous. So anyways, in sort of summary, there were a lot of positives to the Lanai plantation experience. And I understand why my my classmates who grew up there look back on it fondly, because it it um, there were no hard drugs. The amusements of life were uh, as you say, hunting and fishing, uh, playing sports. What we would look at now as sort of healthy, uh, positive experiences. And so, and then you had uh, lifetime employment. You had a very secure economic situation so that the majority of families on Lanai uh, could, could save up enough money to send their children to college in Honolulu or, or the mainland. So that kind of security is what's, of course, lacking for the bottom, say, 80 to 90% of American households now, in my view. So there's that. And so I, I'm, I don't want to ramble. So I think that the other elements that were so positive about Lanai was the sense of community. Um, and I was a new kid in town. And so that was a bit uh, strange uh, for them and for me. <laughs> Because my brother and I were basically the only Howleys in the school, uh, other than the principal's daughter. And so we were a, a bit weird to everyone else, right? We were struggling to learn pigeon, which was kind of teak, yeah, kind of teak on Lanai, you know? So um, yeah, plenty, plenty teak pigeon. So it was uh, a, a super engaging, and I just learned a tremendous amount. And and my classmates, I don't know what they gained out of me, but I might have been sort of an amusing mascot in some way. I don't know. Well, the reason, uh, Charles, I wanted to start with Lanai is that everything I read, maybe you can just describe what you do and aren't familiar with your work. Well, real briefly, I think I've divided my life between academic or intellectual pursuits like writing and trying to summarize social economic trends and systems and I've and physical labor uh, skilled labor as a carpenter and and um, builder so I have a lot of practical experience that I continue to use and yet I also have these sort of intellectual pursuits well I, I connect back to Lanai because um, I mean obviously you had the physical work of working on the plantation uh, being an outsider but I was really fascinated as well because you had that kind of underground newspaper. And um, maybe you can just tell us about that and how that, I feel like it's the same thing you're doing now. You're kind of 
producing this underground publication that's popular and I'm just curious what you were writing about then and if there's any link or if there's not. Well, Robert, I really appreciate that insightful question. And I don't know how many other people pick up on that. Uh, but yeah, I think it is a continuation that uh, my one of my classmates, uh, Colbert Matsumoto, who went on to become uh, a key player in the sort of establishment of, of Hawaii, in terms of his investigation into wrongdoing in the Bishop estate that started his career and his many uh, roles as in service to the public good in Hawaii, uh, extremely admirable individual. He and I launched this underground newspaper because we'd, we'd read somewhere about this is the hot new thing to do, right? Start an underground newspaper. And so uh, his father worked for the ILWU, the union, and so we were able to sneak in and use the mimeograph machine when no one was looking. And so we wrote about environmental issues. This was Earth Day 1970 was that era. So it was the nascent beginnings of, of the environmental movement. And we wrote about the uh, just some of the high school things like, well, the basketball team gets all the money. And what about all the other sports <laughs> and things like that? But it, it was um, a revelation for the school because uh, we heard sort of secondhand that the administration, which was basically the principal and the vice principal, <laughs> thought that it was uh, imposed by teachers because a lot of the teachers were young Hawleys, uh that had been recruited directly from the mainland because at that time, the DOE was extremely short of teachers, that this, the state's population was expanding, the baby boom and so on. So. Um, so we, uh, we, we said, no, it was us and were no teachers involved. And so, and so we had a lot of, um, fun doing that. And we also, uh, collected, um, uh, contributions from students. We had a little box in, in one of the teachers' classrooms to, uh, put poems and bits of things in there that, and we would select kind of play editor and run the, run the real poems and, and leave out the song lyrics that somebody copied off a song. So yeah, it was it was quite an education. And then, I mean, I'm just linking to the themes that you're exploring now. Maybe you can kind of draw parallels if there are any. Well, I think the, the of course, I think we all are aware of the environmental costs and consequences of global industrialization, what I now call the waste is growth landfill economy. At that time, it was uh, the, the era in which rivers were catching fire in the American Midwest from just gross levels of, of pollution and toxins being dumped into public waterways and air. So I think that's a continuation. And I think we're still in that environment grappling with the consequences of, of this giant global economy we've created to generate a huge surplus of goods and services. but by basically not really uh, making a full accounting of the costs and consequences of that giant industrial machine, right? So I think that's one thread. And then a sense of justice, I think, um, that, you know, fair play, like, is everybody getting the same square deal? Or are some people getting first in line, so to speak? If that's the case, is, then what can we do about it? So there's some sort of like examination of problems and solutions. So I think those are the threads that carry through. A lot of your writing kind of you link to the idea of neo-feudalism. Neo After Lanai, you jump to Oahu, 
and then you went to Punahou. I'm curious how that <laughs> switch was and how, if anything, that's affected your lens of seeing the world. Yeah. Well, Robert, I, again, I, I'm extremely appreciative of your super insightful questions because I think a lot of people tend to gloss over what happens in our teenage years. People understand the impact of what you experienced as a child, especially if it was traumatic or unpleasant. But your teen years are where you blossom as, as an individual, as character, as a personality, and you start acquiring your adult interests as you, as you navigate teen years. And so in a way, I was blessed that I got to go to three high schools in, in four years. And so from, you know, from California to Lanai was a transition that really opened my eyes. And then to Punahou, which even though I lived on Lanai, I didn't really understand the, the, the place that Punahou held in the local psyche, um, history, and a socioeconomic sort of establishment, right? And so even now, and then Punahou has changed a lot. In other words, back, uh, this was 50 years ago, uh, there was, although it was a very, it was very reflective mix of, of the ethnicities and classes that are in Hawaii today, it was, its reputation was more like where the elite holidays went. And so that's changed a lot. And in fact, my friend Colbert's daughters went there and he said, no, no, that's not the case anymore. And so it, it it's changed with the times. And I think um, as all institutions do. So, but at that time, it was also, uh, it had this reputation that if you could get your child into Punahou, you'd really made it. And they were going to, they were going to, have a, a better life as a result. And and that that is still present today. In other words, I, I hear that um I hear that pride when other people like acquaintances or neighbors say, oh, and my grandchild is in Punahou. And you, and of course people feel the same pride about uh Kamehameha, rightly so, and Iolani and you know, but this whole the whole neo-feudal aspect of it, as you, um, as I think you you anticipate, is that what's this thing about private schools? I mean, why are they so important in in Hawaii, especially? I mean, especially Oahu. And why is that the case? And why do they play such a role in in catapulting your child into you know a higher category of socioeconomic opportunity? And and of course the answer is well, the public schools are. Um, underfunded, or they're not getting the resources. This is sort of neo-feudal, right? There's two class systems. That is, of course, troubling for anybody that that says, "Well, wait a minute, what's a democracy mean, right? And and what is a what is a free market economy that that's open to all? What are these? How do these line up in 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 a neo-feudal setting? And of course, the history of Hawaii is also neo-feudal in that the occupying forces both corporate and, and political, set themselves up at the top. And so at that era was also the era of the big five. There were five large corporations that dominated the, the public or the private sector and were highly influential in, in politics. And those, ironically, are all gone. There's not a shred left except Alexander and Baldwin on Maui. And so um, things change. Yeah, the neo-feudal aspects were a shock to me, and I was really afraid uh, 
going to Punahou once I kind of caught on that I was shoved into some elite school as a senior, the only senior. <laughs> that was new, right? I mean, you just they they don't they don't accept people after generally uh, uh, other than like say the freshman class is like the last time you get in. Do okay. In other words, I realized I you know when you're faced with severe strict high level competition in whatever field you're doing, then you of course you up your game and you find out your limits. And uh, and that's very useful to you in life. And so you should always get into a situation where you're pushed to your limit or beyond, because then you really discover what you're good at, what you're okay at, and what you're really not good at. And so I was not good at math and physics at the higher level. I was like, okay, I'm struggling here. This is this is supposed to be easy, right? <laughs> Learned the differences that you might not see from the outside between what we can call the upper middle class and the middle class and the working class. In other words, this sort of class structure to neo-feudalism that is still, um, there still some social mobility available in, in the U.S., unlike, unlike a truly feudal economy where the social mobility was extremely limited. You can claw your way into the higher reaches of the economy and society, but it really helps if you if you if you understand the value system that that you're um, you need to acquire, it's not just working hard and saving money or getting into an elite institution. You have to have this whole set of values if you want to work in that higher level. So, what do you see the parallels between that kind of model and let's jump up a level for the United States as a whole, and then potentially for the world? Yeah, I think that's, that's great... the, the scale you write on is usually local. I mean, you had that wonderful essay about the time capsule. I mean, yeah. maybe you, you could start there. I don't know. Yeah. the Well, the time capsule got a lot of interesting um, feedback from people who could relate to it. And what, what the story was, was, you know, we've taken care of my mom-in-law here. And she's um, been, she's lived within a 10-mile radius of, of where she was born here on the Big Island her whole life. And so she was born in 1931. And so when you listen to someone born in the late 20s or early 30s, you're, you're, you're basically entering a time capsule of the 30s, 40s, and 50s when they were youthful and, and forging their life. And so life was, of course, a lot simpler and it was a lot poorer in terms of material wealth. But what people related to was there was a the, the wealth was in community and stability. The, the family structure and the community structure, because of the poverty, then, then these were really strong structures that you could count on. And so people counted on other people rather than the government to send them money or, or what we now think of as financial security, like how much money do you have in your 401k? You know, I mean, so that was part of it, like the idea of, of, of examining what is security and, and wealth and prosperity? And so everybody understands material wealth, but we've sort of lost sight of the, the wealth that comes from strong family and community ties in terms of well-being. And this is a term that I use a lot because there's not many other words in English or phrases in English that, that talk about the sense of of security and stability and feeling safe in life and and having people that you can count on. So those are, and of course, your physical wealth and well-being, right? Well-being. And so a lot of these 
people live live into their 90s. We have lots of neighbors. Uh, some have turned 100. Others are 99. And it's like, well, are they doing some kind of magical, you know, potent? Are they they having some strict, super uh, uh, scarce diet of special goods? No, they just ate like local food, but they had a very healthy, active lifestyle and community support. And so we we forget that health is the mind and body are one. And so, you know, it's not just what you put in your mouth, but it's like the environment you live in. So all of that comes back to, okay, your larger, your question, what about the U.S. and the, and the world? And it, it's really clear, like statistically, and this is what I, I try not to do too many statistical things, but you look at a graph or a chart and it, it brings it home that, well, like 10% of every population owns like 90% of the wealth virtually anywhere. And so there's these huge disparities of wealth, which of course equals power in terms of political power and influence. So we we live in what seems to be a neo-feudal structure of, of which a, a, a certain limited class of households own most of the wealth of the nation. And this, this plays out across the world. Um, it's true of, of, of China and as, as and many other places as well as as the US. So we can say, why is this? What what's the dynamics in these systems that create this or or enable it or um, maintain it? And what can we do? What can we hope to change in that? And so it and and of course it's a different era too, in that we can go back in history and go, well, there was less, there's always an elite, right? Because humans are social animals, and we are we are genetically wired for hierarchies, just like our cousins, the, the chimpanzees. And so it's it's like we are used to the idea of of having leaders, and then they get some privileges for their um, their leadership, uh, presuming it's it's a positive leadership. But regardless, they get they get a bigger share. But you know, it's supposedly in trade for doing something for the the rest of us or the community. But that seems to have broken down. And so uh, people are getting the wealth without actually providing for the common good. And that, I think, is part of the decay and decline I see. And I think it's global. Connecting back to, I guess, the local, um, I, I think we can talk about your solutions and how maybe later, but I want to talk about your work as a carpenter and going back to kind of your pineapple picking days and how that's because you're always jumping between kind of the cerebral and then the physical. So I'm curious how that's informing. Are you outside this neo-feudal system? Are you kind of jumping around it? I'm curious where you see yourself in it. That's also a, a great question, Robert. Thank you very much. Uh, and and you, of course, have um, and I can relate to to the, the the limits of what I know about your life that you sketched out. I I can see you also moving. Uh, whether you want to call it up, down, sideways, um, or in orbit, it throughout this complex socioeconomic system that you've been an entrepreneur and been successful at things and tried many things. And so I'm kind of, I would put myself on the margins of the, the status quo. In other words, I've never had a corporate job. I've never worked for the government. Um, I mean, if you call picking pineapple or working for a corporation, that was my corporate job. <laughs> Um, tried a variety of things. I've been an entrepreneur and I think I, I basically failed in, in the sense of financially, I did not succeed as a builder, but I, I gained a 
a huge wealth of experience. Um, so I think I think I'm on the margins of society because I enjoy physical work, uh, which is not valued very much in our society. Uh, and it tends to be looked down upon and uh, somehow lesser. Uh, there's lesser nobility in 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 physical work than in in uh, intellectual work, and of course, I I don't think that's a fair. I don't think that's a fair assessment. But I th I think that the practical world, where you're 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 building something and you're uh, trying to manage people, materials that you've got to get on site, and a bunch of complicated stuff to get physical work done in the real world. That gives you a different perspective than than people that just don't really have any physical skills, and they don't really know what's involved in stuff that they take for granted. Like, for instance, there's just an endless amount of things: the sewage system, the water treatment plant, um, you know, roadways, the electrical lines. And so, when people talk about, oh, we're all going to have like electric cars and you know, helicopters and everything, it's all like I'm I'm. Because I'm practical and I think about, well, how would I assemble or fix an electric car or electric helicopter? It would be like, well, what do we do with all these batteries? And it's like, oh, well, we throw 98% of them in the landfill. And it's all like, well, well, is that going to be, is, is that really sustainable? I mean, where, <laughs> and so those are the kind of questions that come up to people, I think, that arise in, in those of us who clients and so on. You, you also have an appreciation for life outside some kind of rigid hierarchy. Like, for instance, if you're an academic and you're in the university, it's a hierarchy, and you learn to navigate that, that hierarchy. We're in the private sector, which is, you know, the more rough and tumble, then you, you have to establish your own uh, connections. And they're often more sideways than, you know, top to bottom hierarchies. You, you're, you're working with people. And that gives you a whole nother understanding of the complexity of getting anything done in the real world, you know? <laughs> so um, I, that's a kind of a rambling answer, but my practical side has informed my intellectual interests because I'm very interested in the exact way that we're supposed to fix problems, like exactly what resources are required, where are they coming from, how costly is it to get them here, process them and turn them into something? And then how do we actually physically recycle it? I mean, what's involved? And so those, those are the questions that everyone glosses over that, that, that's sitting in the top tier of the, uh, you know, media or academia. That, th those things are all kind of often just brushed off. Like, oh, well, you know, we have top people working on that. You know, it'll, no problem. It'll all get recycled. It's all like, really? How come it's not recycled now? It must not be very profitable or else Google would be doing it. So those are the kinds of questions that arise if you have any practical experience in the world. So then maybe jumping forward a bit, could you maybe expand on your small press? I think you started, I forget the name, Voltage Age, I believe it was called, and how that kind of then put you back into the, I guess, mind part of your work. Yeah, the... Um... Interesting. Yeah, I, I wanted to, I've had an interest in technology since high school. And so I did not choose a career or pursue a career in science or technology per se. But I was interested in the kind of commentary on, on, on how technology was developing. 
And so I I started uh, with my sister-in-law in Berkeley. I started a, a magazine. We started a magazine right around the time that a Several other people, like Mondo 2000, uh, was also started around that same time, the early 80s. And it was the idea of, hey, the technology's uh, developing in all kinds of new ways because of the personal computer and the, the beginnings of the network uh, computer. And so let's let's uh, start these publications so we can comment about this. And so that was another failure financially, um, but uh, a, another success in terms of gaining experience and so on. And I was really interested in AI, and I read a lot of books about AI at that time. So, and that's continued on. I don't claim to be an expert in AI, but I think I've been reading about it for you know, 30, 40 years. And so I have a, some foundation that we assume, or that, uh, that what I call the mythology of technological progress. We assume it's all going to be good. And as critic uh, Jerry Mander, who wrote the book about the reasons uh, why we should turn off the TV, he, he was pointing out the technology, the mythology of technology is it's always going to be good. It's always going to advance humanity in some way. And it's always the best case scenarios are what gets played. Uh, because that's what's profitable, of course. But there's there can be the worst case scenario too, and those get short shrift because those aren't very profitable, right? And so, and they might cause if the people who own the technology to get restricted in some way, and then they wouldn't be able to maximize their market share and and profitability. So we don't we don't look at at worst case scenarios, and so. Um, anyways, that to my interest in these kinds of what I call mythologies about technology go back to that the early 80s when there was a wave of of AI enthusiasm. There was a wave of AI enthusiasm in the late 60s, and then it kind of petered out when everybody realized so-called general intelligence was not going to be um, achievable. Then there was another wave uh, due to you know, faster processors and so on in the 80s, the early 80s, and then that kind of petered out, and now we've had a resurgence of of interest and what's a little different about it this time is now there's some more interest in um, the downside, the, the, the potential worst case of AI basically taking over humanity and turning us into goo or in, in that kind of extreme, but also just looking at like, well, what happens when we when everybody's voice can be mimicked or everybody's image can be mimicked? These are questions that are, are real and, um, and, and it's, not, it's not clear if they're, still, if they're controllable. But we should at least ask whether they should be controllable. Familiar with the author um, Dmitry Orlov? Yes. In fact, I corresponded with Dmitry back in the day, maybe twenty some years ago, uh, when I think he, I think he wrote uh, his book uh, "Reinventing Collapse." Uh, uh, I'm not sure the exact date, but yeah, uh, we 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 corresponded occasionally. Well, there's just a lot of parallels because you know he's a intellectual and also concerned you know he does a lot of labor with his hands you know building boats and i guess he now he's in russia you know uh returning back to russia and he writes a lot about he has that book called i think shrinking the technosphere where he writes a lot about concerns and opportunities and technology so there's and then obviously his scenarios on collapse um a difference between you and him though you had an essay on i guess what i would call doomerism 
And I'm curious where you, maybe you can expand on that essay and where you see yourself in that hierarchy or in that doom model. I, I find you quite optimistic and positive, but I'm just curious where you see yourself in that kind of, if you're in a state, late stage of collapse or where you, where you fit in into that kind of sense making. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that question too, Robert. And, and, um, I think we all, we all understand the, the appeal of, of disaster movies. And of course they can often be amusing in, in, in how far they have to reach now to impress the audience. You know, you've got to have a thousand foot tall, you know, tsunami and stuff to, to uh, top the previous disaster movie. And so there is a kind of doom horn is what I call it, where it, there's almost a pornography of doom where people, uh, pursue these sort of salacious uh, scenarios of total chaos and and destruction of, of civilization and so on. And then there's the other end of that spectrum is what I call like empty optimism. And that's the um, sort of, to me, sort of breezy, uninformed, unconnected from the real world assumptions that we're all going to, it's all going to be fine because we've got top people working on it and we'll be able to electrify the whole global economy and recycle all the batteries and, and everything's going to be great. And, but there's no details in any of that stuff. Like nobody actually explains like how complicated a lithium ion battery is and how many components there are in there and the incredible difficulty of trying to separate those components and actually reuse them in, in some way. And it turns out that's not a, Reveal problem at all. And in fact, the product has to be re-engineered to be recyclable, which means it's going to cost more money and therefore it's going to be less profitable and you know, so on. So I'm more in, I think I'm kind of in the middle of that, in that I see the vulnerability of these enormous systems we've created, that they look uh just as systems. And this is what I'm really interested in is systems share dynamics across the entire spectrum. And they're scale invariant, meaning that the system that you have for your your sole proprietorship or your household, there are system uh, system dynamics in play there that play out in the community and in, in the town, the city, this uh, the the region, the country, you know, and the world. And so, if you have these uh, systems which are very vulnerable because they're they they have a lot of fragile features like there there's like sole suppliers of of things or there's a one supply chain for for an essential component these kinds of systems are really easy to disrupt or fall apart and i also am curious to see how capitalism plays out in this way which is you get rid of redundancy and and multiple suppliers and multiple supply chains because those are those are cost uh, elements. So the way to maximize your profit is get rid of redundancy and, and multiple supply chains. And so I I use that as an example to show how systems can fall apart. And the more dependent we are on these sort of fragile systems, then of course, the, the greater the potential for dominoes to fall. For example, you know, the, the, the semiconductors, you know, went into scarcity. And so then they, the they they couldn't make all the vehicles anymore. That that kind of thing can go into things that are like the electrical grid, um, water treatment. Um, there's a lot of other things that can be impacted that will definitely uh, reduce 
comfort and convenience. And so that's a, that all stuff is that stuff is real. Now, you don't need a nuclear war or a thousand foot tsunami. You, you simply need a decay of these long global supply chains. Uh, and, and, you know, people are aware of this. And so there's this, a, an attempt to reshore industry and, and, and to talk about food security, which to me is a big issue here in Hawaii. I think we're 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 just catastrophically dependent on outside sources for food in a way that was not the case at 60 years ago as an example so i think that the positive part is is like that for food security you start looking at what you can do to encourage food production in, you know in your own locale and and reduce your dependency it's never going to go to zero you know we still need industrial parts and uh, complex machinery, but we, if we reduce our dependence, that's going to put us further along the, the spectrum towards uh, reducing potential of collapse and 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 also kind of ensuring some kind of basic comfort and and convenience. So the question is also what what role does history have in 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 showing us how humans have um, responded in the past to these kinds of decays of complex system. And of course, there's this, there's, there's an entire library of books about collapse and the dynamics and the history of it. You know, we're still running wetware 1.0, meaning that most of our genetic uh, makeup is from like 200,000 years ago when we, you know, entered the, the sort of modern Homo sapiens sapien era and we were hunter gatherers and, and our skill sets and the way we uh, are used to working together were all optimized by hunting and gathering so we learned you know communication and and cultural knowledge were critical working together um, some competition for for mating and and leadership you know kind of kept things vibrant and so all a lot of these elements will continue on even if like industrial civilization collapses because we're still going to be we can still we still have our hunter gatherer genetic heritage and of working together and and valuing uh, communication cultural knowledge and so on so uh, if we look back at, at civilizations that were extremely compl uh, complex, uh, such as the Western Roman Empire, what John Michael Greer calls catabolic collapse, right? Like a kind of, you know, complexity is reduced to a new level, and then it drops up to another lower level. And so you can kind of go down the ladder. It wasn't like 99% of the people in the Western Roman Empire just up and died. You know, they just, they went to a much lower level of complexity. And they they formed over the time of what we call the the dark ages. They they formed um, different ways of of dealing with things. If we've sort of relocalized our our lives and our economy, then you know we're we're going to do okay. We're going to survive and be fine. Maybe jumping to one specific focus of your analysis, I'm curious why so many writers of I'm going to call collapse and doom and kind of your focus and decentralization and things like that. Where does the heavy focus on finance come from and interest? It seems like, you know, Dmitry Orloff writes about that. Jonathan Greer writes about that. Other, you know, Lord Hughes, I don't know if you remember him, but he's another kind of doomer on more on the environmental extinctionati type. They're always obsessed with finance. And I'm curious where you see the importance of finance, specifically how you got interested in it and what you're trying to do or communicate when you focus on writing on finance. I, I, I'm, I, I'm sorry to keep repeating just how insightful these questions are. I mean, truly, you're, you're getting to the core 
elements of like the global crisis or uh, situation. And, and so, yeah, the and I think you're right to call it an obsession with finance and because finance has replaced the real world in so many ways. That replacement has then put it at the top of the pyramid so that we think because of this erosion of the real world into like some sort of background handled by somebody else in some you know developing world country finance is is like the be all the end all because it seems to be that in our economy and society today like in other words if there's a problem then we turn to the federal reserve to do something or other by printing money or creating credit or whatever or the government's supposed to borrow another trillion and spend it and that's going to fix the problems finance has sort of elevated itself as as a as a sector in the economy and as a point of leverage in the economy. It's like this progression from a economy that you could say was more like cash-based and therefore finance played a very limited role in that economy. How did we go from that where you saved your earnings and then you invested it in a tool or some improvement in your life or the education of your children, et cetera, to a life where literally everything is based on credit, like borrowing money. Like you can't buy a vehicle without that. You can't buy a house. You can't fund a, uh, your university education without borrowing a couple of trillion dollars. And so this reliance on on credit is what's built finance up uh, to, to such a large force in, in the economy. In other words, so people sort of understand if finance collapses, that means we have no credit, which means we can't borrow money, which means we can't buy houses, cars, university educations, or virtually anything <laughs> of value. And so it's all like, well, wait a minute, how do we get so dependent on, on finance? And of course, the answer is that the cost of living has increased so dramatically compared to wages that people simply cannot afford to save enough money to pay for these things. And there's there's other dynamics in play that I talk about, like the bureau, the, the rise of the bureaucracy or the administrative state. And I, there's you know there's charts I've posted where it shows rather really kind of striking that the number of doctors say in the healthcare system has barely risen in decades, but the number of administrators has gone up like tenfold. And the same is true of the university system, that the number of tenure professors is basically the same as it was you know 30 years ago. But the number of administrators has skyrocketed, and the salaries that they're earning have, have, have soared. And so, and then we're, we have to kind of look at that and go, well, wait a minute. Maybe the reason why finance is now dominant is that we've, we've, without really noticing it, we've become totally dependent on, on credit, the distribution of new money. In other words, the central bank issuing money out of thin air, and then the government issuing money out of thin air, and so on. That these are now what we depend on. And I I do want to push back on that in my from my little perch uh, because I don't think there's a financial solution to the decay of social uh, good and of civic virtue and uh, relocalization. I don't think that finance plays much of a role in any of that. And so when people talk about cryptocurrencies as like the solution, right, or gold or something like that, as if we just get some other form of money, then it's all going to be fine. It's like they're overlooking that credit is like the, the primary engine of the economy. 
And it's the primary engine because people don't have enough disposable income to pay for anything beyond everyday uh, expenses. And so how do you fix that? And so then you say, well, if you're going to talk about reforming finance, it has to be reformed in in tandem with labor. In other words, uh, if you if you 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 have to be able to compensate people with your whatever form of money you're using, so that they can actually afford everything out of their earnings instead of having to borrow money. And so that's the basis of my labor-backed currency idea. So Charles, coming back to some of your thoughts. You jump between ideological frameworks. You seem critical of you know finance and late stage capitalism, but you're not coming at it kind of a socialist or Marxist analysis. But you're still emphasizing labor. So I'm just curious how you shift your lenses or what your kind of ideological or political analysis is rooted in. Is it kind of the Quaker? I know you were a Quaker or had some relevance to the Quaker movement. So I'm just curious where you're kind of basing your moral or kind of labor analysis, particularly in? Well, again, that's a great question. I mean, again, I, 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 I just love being able to talk about these important things that, that are usually glossed over in, in our lives, which is like, where are you coming from at the core of your being? How is that manifesting in your, your view of life or your, you know, what idea ideology appeals to you? Certainly the core of Quakerism and Buddhism and Taoism, all of which are, have been are continue to be strong influences and and in my life, is there's there there should be a sense of justice and fair play. In other words, that that the core of what we call progress or success or whatever is really about is does everybody have a fair chance at, at to fulfill their lives and, and opportunity? So, the, and and so this ties together. In my view, and again, I'm I'm I majored in philosophy, you know, at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and Eastern and Western. So I'm pretty familiar, you know, at, with the with the fundamentals of of Eastern thought and Western thought. And so, like, if you look at Marxism, and I did in fact study Marxism at UH for a year with um, Professor Bender, Marx is sure, although he doesn't, it's not really talked about much. Was a sense of outrage at the injustice of of the economic system he saw of exploitation of the masses to the benefit of the few and this is the driving force behind his his whole um analysis of 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 the economy and society so i i draw a lot upon marx not so much for his solutions which you know he and engels really kind of left that that's kind of that warm and fuzzy kind of like um uh, empty optimism kind of thing that um, th- they didn't really sketch out like details of of a solution, but they they uh, Marx did illuminate these dynamics of of capitalism that that generate um, exploitation and not as a bug but as a feature. And so I I I I I, um, I know I confuse people because it's all like, well, wait a minute, are you in favor of of, of competition? And my answer is, well, yeah, in limited contexts, a global uh, competition that's un, that has no limits, because that's then you end up with an exploitive system. So, yeah, I draw upon uh, Marxism um, as, as, as because his illumination of, of these economic forces is still 
uh, relevant. And then, but you, but if as an entrepreneur, you go, well, is socialism the answer? And then on two fronts, I would say no, because number one, socialism is based on the same uh, flawed model of growth as capitalism. I mean, whether it's communist, socialist, or capitalist, every every system is pursuing um, what I call the waste is growth landfill economy. Nobody's pursuing deep growth or a sustainable economy. That 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 there's there's uh, you know kind of like polite talk about it, but nobody's actually doing any of that as a goal of the ideology. So all the ideologies are the same if you looked at it environmentally. And then the other issue is. Where is the opportunity for exploitation in socialism and communism? And of course, we all know the answer is there's plenty of opportunity for um, the few to rig the system to um, to benefit themselves at the expense of the many. And so what you want to have, ideally, I think, is a flattened uh, structure where the, you know, the, the, what's optimized isn't some elite benefiting themselves at the expense of everyone else but what's optimized is 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 having feedback and um pushback and a kind of a turn where you know nobody's allowed to to rig the system because there's uh, there's going to be pushback from other players or other participants and so you have a, a more dynamic system where there's more dissent um, and more entrepreneurship, people trying stuff to see if it works and then sharing what works with other people. Charles, I was going to ask, maybe we can shift some of your your nonfiction books and how you start offering you know, solutions. I mean, you kind of brushed upon solutions from an entrepreneurial perspective. I'm just curious, maybe you can walk us through your books and some of what you're doing with those titles as well. Okay, real. I'll try to keep it brief, but um, I've 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 touched on a lot of different topics, and uh, just I'll I'll choose a few. One is I, I looked at the whole higher education system, which I think is corrupt, venal, exploitive, a classic neo feudal structure. And that's what it's become, and I don't think it's really serving the students that well. And a lot of people agree with me, of course, on that. So what's the solution? And so my solution was um, this sort of nearly free university model uh which you know relies on the fact that digital content is basically free to deliver and um so if you get rid of if you scrape off the profiteering and um, the neo-feudal structure then you know education can be practically free and then especially if you combine it with a, a hands-on kind of um workshop model then you know students would then be given an opportunity to learn hands-on in whatever field they've chosen even in the sciences right or so that's a model that I think would would benefit us tremendously, and then it, it kind of ties into my other model about um, in my book on how to get a job and build a real career. Uh, the idea there is to um, authenticate and um, you know uh, yourself. In other words, don't rely on a credential to um, authenticate your your knowledge or experience, just authenticate yourself. And, and so kind of like take charge of your own career instead of um, just trying to collect the institutional stamps. And then uh, focusing on trying to get like what I consider the basic eight skills that, that, that apply to any field, any job, any endeavor. The skills that every institution, every business, everybody else, every community group values in, a, in, a, in an individual. You know, so if you get those skills and values, then you're, you're going to 
going to have opportunities because those are what everybody values because they're they're so useful. So those are a couple of ideas. And then I also talked about like the idea that AI is going to replace all the humans or get rid of most of the jobs. And so we'll all be either living off borrowed money or some sort of magical free money thing, or we'll be impoverished. I, I proposed instead that that all work be paid and and that the financial system be reorganized to focus on labor so that all work would be paid and valued and that um, ai can be a tool or you know an aid um but it, it doesn't replace human labor and because every human wants to contribute and be valued and actually to be part of something larger than themselves and so the the goal of our entire economic system should be to provide that opportunity for everyone and to pay them so that um they they can they can have a livelihood and that optimizing an economy for that is uh really a different economy but i i consider it the the right goal so those are some of my ideas about uh solutions you know and then most recently i've talked about burnout because i you know i'm kind of a type a person and so i've i've burned out a couple three times in my life where you push yourself too hard and then you are become basically incapacitated. So I wanted to share my experience of burnout in the hopes that other people could gain some insight into their own burnout. And then I talked about self-reliance um, because that's, that's I think, part of the whole idea of relocalizing our economy as well. Where does that start? And it's like, is it some kind of government grant or some kind of you know big institution has to be involved? And it's like, well, no, actually it just starts in your own yard if you have a yard or a community garden. And I've had a long interest in this. In fact, I, I was first in line at the Makiki uh, Community Garden when it opened in like 1979 or something like that, 78, 75, I don't know, back in the 70s. And so there's a lot that we could do to just start growing surplus food in our on our own. We, we don't need necessarily an institution, although that would be nice. I'm curious what you think about multipolarity and how that ties into your concepts on decentralization and localization. Could you sketch out what multipolarity means? Uh, well, there's a lot of writers right now who are, you know, I think pretty clearly documenting that the Western hegemonic, you know, polar world is changing. There's BRICS, there's China, there's India, there's, you know, new it all ties into your finance and your collapse and localization. So I'm just curious how you see, you know, with the growth of China or the growth of India, the weakening of the U.S. model, you know, there's wars all over the world reemerging, the fourth turning, you know, there's a change. And I, I wonder how you your book, Self-Reliance, is a response to some of the greater, if there's a collapse of the neo-feudal neo kind of system. So, you know, people have to kind of localize their solutions, just like your grandma did. You're right, Robert. That That's exactly the drift of, of what I see as, as the, the positive way to deal with this, that we're, we, we can't, there's no time machine to go back. And the, the multipolarity I see as a positive, uh, I mean, it, it, of course, there are negatives and trade-offs in any kind of global change. But the multipolarity, I think, is is ultimately positive for the planet because the, the competition that I value 
is is not what we think of as as market competition where you crush your opponents and or buy them out so you dominate the market that's that's actually not you know that's capitalism but not competition competition is open and transparent and and uh, so therefore a multipolar world is issuing new currencies new ideas um new ways of production new ways to organize production new ways to organize society and not all of those are going to work and they're not going to work for everyone but at least um having that that churn of of competing ideas and, and currencies uh that i think will will strengthen uh the humanities transition to a sustainable economy uh at least it 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 opens the door to um change on multiple levels that that don't that don't need like some higher authority stamp of approval to get done um because that's the problem of course when you have a a, a centralized power with a small hierarchy at the top then those people are only going to rubber stamp what suits them and keeps the status quo that benefits them in exactly as it is you know that they, they don't mind policy tweaks on the edge but they're not going to actually let any of their power or wealth um dissipate and spread down to the bottom 99% so you 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 know i guess my point being any kind of multipolarity that the, the lower it drifts down into each nation and each region then the better off humanity will be so hopefully multipolarity will include not just um different centralized governments um competing but um but new models of social organization within those nations that are more localized but yeah and i think um the fourth turning um peter turchin's 50 year cycle of 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 discord and and um disintegration i i also see a lot of value in his work there's just a lot of models that all that all turn on cycles or waves of disruption and and the core of that we should we should remember is humans always expand their consumption up to the limits of the resources available and then once they do that they suck up the resources and deplete them and then um then there's a battle for the remaining resources that are insufficient for the consumption levels that people are you know desire and so that was true of rome that was true of you know um 3000 bc you know i mean it's a cycle of history and so i think we've reached that point and that's one of the key drivers behind multipolarity is everybody's sensing there's not enough of everything to go around and so it's like time to circle the wagons and try to compete or fight for our share basically decaying into discord and and conflict that's that's a key reason right there so yeah self reliance and and relocalization are are answers to that and again and there's not a perfect answer but it's a it's any, if you can reduce your dependency on fragile failing systems to any in any way then it's going to be beneficial i'm curious how i haven't read your nonfiction i mean your fiction writing maybe you can just give me a framework for what you're doing in your fiction writing and if you explore these same themes or other themes or what you're doing or how you contrast it to writing modalities well thank you for that i guess it's just self expression and it's kind of like my recording my songs and stuff that a, a key part of of being um i mean to being a human 
is to explore yourself, try different things, and um, and to express who you are, right? And uh, that great philosopher Bruce Lee, and I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but actually he was, of course, extremely well read and and did have a, a spiritual aspect to his um, his martial arts, and 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 he felt that martial arts was in fact at its core self expression. Like it wasn't about beating somebody up or being better skilled or whatever. It was about self-expression. And so I think that's a core driver of my fiction. I, I tend to take one genre at a time. And so I've written like a, you know, kid's mystery. And then I've I've written a road novel. And yeah, it's just a form of self-expression. Other people like um, have knitting or um, they, you know, they make ukuleles or other things. And I, you know, I write novels nobody reads, but it's um it's all good. It's all fun. Well, I think it comes back to one of your messages about being authentic. Yeah, I'm just curious where what your day-to-day writing or creative output is like. Do you spend most of the time just researching or what what do you what's your typical day-to-day output like? Yeah, I guess it's um as 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 an entrepreneur, I know that you know that self-discipline is is the is like the core uh skill of of, of getting anything done that's going to take a long time or uh that you want to see fulfilled, then you know you got to have self-discipline. So I'm I'm actually very disciplined. I don't I can't stand living online uh, more than a few hours a day. I, I have to like get out and be in the real world, and so I don't really live online like a lot of other writers seem to do. Um, and so I just um, I will research as needed, and I will keep the blog going, but I I keep it going within this uh, strict form which is what am i interested in today or what what's what's fascinating me or what do i want to write about and so if i don't have anything i want to write about then i don't i don't write anything i i don't force it it's got to be of some interest to me something that i want to share with my readership and then i'm always writing a book and i'm always writing a novel and so some are set aside to focus on one or the other but so i always spend some time every week um on the book you know, rewriting it or composing um, it, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I'm I'm actually extremely disciplined. It kind of like again, it's a practical skill. If you want to build a house, then you're going to have to get out there and do some of the work every day, and then eventually, you know, you make progress. So, thing is, write in the morning and then go out and live in the real world. You know, take care of the plants, and do some weeding, et cetera. It's funny. I don't know if you listened to the interview I did with Tao Lin. He's on the big island as well. He's a writer. You know, he's very rooted now in kind of doing, I don't know if Hawaii does that to people, but it kind of roots you in the physical a little bit more than say, if you were, you know, a writer in New York or San Francisco. I'm just curious how coming back to the big island has changed your relationship with labor and your mental labor. Yeah, that's a great question too. And, um, Actually, I, in a way, I, I owned, I bought land when, uh, when we were, um, my girlfriend and I were in this, we were just, you know, we're young still, and we bought land in Pune with the idea of having a homestead. And we just were, didn't have the money. We just weren't capitalized enough to do that. You know, you just get a, a chunk of lava and then you're going to try to turn it into something. It takes a lot of money. And so I had to go and, uh, navigate the rest of, the economy for decades to, to have enough money to to buy like what other people consider just a normal old house. 
But it has enough land where I can actually start growing stuff as I've always dreamed of. In other words, to have some big trees and um, and gardens and stuff. And on the mainland, at least in California, if you're in the urban areas, it's too expensive to own more than a postage stamp of land. So I had a garden in Berkeley with a peach tree and a lemon tree, but it was like really limited. And, you know, you've got three apartment buildings right around you blocking your sun. And so to come back to Hawaii, where the growing season is like every, you know, 365 days a year, it is like um, freeing. It's like entering, it's like entering a, a paradise opportunity for those of us that like to grow stuff. And so, and, and, you, and, you know, I don't know, it's like, well, I was, I was 63, I was 62, you know, I mean, in other words, I, I already worked 40 some years before I could really get what I wanted when I was 19. And, but I think that's pretty, um, that's not uncommon. And so, yeah, it's, it's like freeing to be able to grow whatever you want and experiment. So it, it's, it's really good fun. And it's also so nourishing to, to grow a surplus that you can share. And, and that's um, the core of what we do. You know, I mean, I grow hundreds of pounds of, of breadfruit, bananas, and other stuff that, that we share with our neighbors and family and stuff. So um, that's, um, that's part of the benefit of it is it's really a social exercise to grow food. And Charles, my last two questions are, one, what do you think, I mean, you grew up in Hawaii, your formative years. What do you think the rest of the world can learn from kind of a Polynesian or Hawaiian or kind of this hapahaole mental state? I'm just curious what you think, you know, that we can export or that's maybe some ideas or I'm just curious what you think, what messages, I mean, aside from community or what lessons can be exported out? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. And of course, as a Hawaii, I'm... Um, reluctant to comment on um, Hawaiian culture, Hawaiian history, because I am an outsider. And, and so therefore, and, and no matter what my own experience is, it's, it's, um, I'm hesitant to, to make much of my experience here other than, you know, what I can grow in my yard here. You know, I grow ulu, I grow taro, I make my own poi. And so if you want to talk about something related to Aina as 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 the source of life, then, then I, I can walk you around my yard. That's all I know. But beyond that, I think an appreciation for um, ancestral cultures and the mixing of cultures. I mean, I think that's what Hawaii uh, can authentically uh, share, that it is possible to appreciate and share the mix of cultures. And as, as we all know, um, Hawaii is is um, unique in in, in the way of, of 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 actually mixing bloodlines. In other words, there's just a tremendous mix of ethnicities in the people here, and and in the marriages that create the people. Draw upon all of the um, all of the all of the the sources that that they carry within them and the cultures. And and I'm you know I myself am, am just a, a you know Irish. Uh, you know, mostly Irish, Scottish, holy. But uh, there's obviously in my family, there's a lot of mixed race people. That I think is something we can export. And also, I think uh, the, the caring for the land. And I don't think this is unique to Hawaii, but we could certainly join hands with 
everyone else in the world who's who's appreciating their aina or terroir and um wanting to take it back from this kind of dependence on agribusiness as if like we we you know as if we can't feed ourselves we have to go to the supermarket and buy something that was packaged and it's like no we don't have to you know and so i think that's something that hawaii could could lead in if if we chose to and there are a lot of people who are really excited about relocalizing you know food production and food security in hawaii and i think that's like a just hugely important positive movement and then Charles, my last question is, um, you said you usually find something that's interesting or what you're writing on. What specifically are you, what's your latest or kind of focuses right now? I'm really interested in a, in a broad topic is um, the the modern mythologies that we live by and that we um, don't even understand our mythologies. We think they're real but they're 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 just as mythological as the greek gods um the source for my starting to think about this was this french philosopher roland barth who wrote about modern mythologies i believe in the 50s and certainly in the 60s and 70s and so the, i think the whole idea that technology is wonderful and it's going to just sort of endlessly supply us with more comfort and convenience and all the good things in life i think that's a mythology and i think the finance is a mythology really and so um and even the state you know the nation state the government i think that in itself is a mythology too so i'm interested in in exploring that kind of thinking and that that what would we what mythology would we create for the 21st century instead of just using a bunch of mythologies from past centuries what would we what mythology could we create that that was actually fit the goal of a sustainable global economy as opposed to a waste is growth landfill economy so that that's um and of course i'm always inspired by self-reliance you know like what what can people do for themselves and how do they minimize their dependence on a like an unhealthy unsustainable system those are those are i think my two interests at the moment and then charles how can people find you or what's the best way to for people to reach you yeah, uh, just visit me at ofTwoMinds.com. That's just uh, spelled like it is, no dots, no dashes, just one word, ofTwoMinds.com. And then there's all my archives of the blog posts. I think there's about 4,000 of those. And then sample chapters of my book and bits and pieces of, of other stuff. Um, and so, yeah, just uh, visit ofTwoMinds.com and look around. And then uh, hopefully you won't be too... Um, annoyed and then charles i'll give you the final anything else you want to share or well robert i just want to compliment you on on the um the breadth of your interests and your guests and i feel really honored to be included in your list of of, of podcast guests all of whom i would say are unconventional in a, in the positive way of they they're um, authentically pursuing themselves and they're and that is contributing good things to the world and and you are contributing good things to the world by by sharing all these people's um, experiences and insights and so I, I just I can't credit you enough but I will that's what I want to say is mahalo plenty for doing what you do.
Oh, great. Well, thank you very much, Charles. I really appreciate that. And I'm happy you took some time to talk to me. I really do.